0: Welcome to the West Side Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in.
1: One thing that we have faith in as Christians, and if you're here visiting today or you're watching online and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, here's here's one kind of big idea uh, as christians that we have faith in we have faith in god's ability to bring about new creation into eternity it's a big piece of faith we have faith also that his methods to do this to bring about new creation uh, are good and right and just and we have been in uh, a mini series this last few weeks called standing through looking through revelation's chapter 6 to 20 and this—it's we've been saying it's not, we're not looking at this in a predictive way, but more of a pastoral, prophetic approach. And we're not looking at sequential things that are happening, but like a music chord or a piece of orchestral piece, it's kind of like one big theme that's laid out with all these images. And we're coming to the end of this section of Revelation. It's been an interesting, fascinating time. And, and chapters 19 to 20 are really highlighting this transition to new creation. Now, our next miniseries is going to be awesome because we're going to explore a new creation. But these two chapters are the transition, and we've already heard in some of the previous chapters that often judgment comes against the principalities and powers in our world co-opted by Satan, or some of the images we see in, this, in Revelation, like the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, empires, economies, ideologies, whether they're religious or secular, co-opted by Satan's influence. And so we're living in the in-between times of like the first resurrection of Jesus and the future. Resurrection of those who are in Christ. And so now, today, we head into these two chapters that are um, pretty fascinating. And as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we're not going to read all two chapters. I'm going to read a portion of uh, a main section and then kind of go back and forth uh, through some of the key key verses. So here's Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. And, and, and I think this is really the, the, the core kind of um, passage inside these two chapters for us in this transition. So, So listen or read along with me. Here we go, verse 11. Then I saw, here's John writing this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed. Can we say this name together? King of kings and Lord of lords. God, as we enter this uh, last portion of this section of Revelation, we just we really humbly come before it because it is just filled with images and metaphors to call us pastorally and prophetically to be faithful witnesses of your son Jesus in the life and day and season and world that we live in. And we pray that even today, God, as we uh, just enter into this section, God, that you would just lead us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I really depend on that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is a great passage of Scripture in a great two chapters of Scripture, and Jesus is right at the center of this. I mean, he's been at the center of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like sometimes we think it's the revelation of the end times. It's not. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it, it, it alludes us to the tension and chaos that we face in our world, that the world faces as well, but that we as followers of Jesus often are called to live in contrast to. And here's Jesus right at the center of this transition that's going to take place as the book continues towards its final two chapters. Like I told you, chapter 1, and two, uh, one, one to 5 and chapters 21 and 22 are the really key parts of Revelation. And then the middle section really helps us understand the chaos chaos and tensions of our world. But here's Jesus on a white horse. Now, we saw a white horse back in the earlier chapters, but that white horse was part of the four horsemen, which really was a horse of conquest. And it was part of the worldly systems that bring things like famine and death and economic inequality and, and things like that. And this white horse is not part of the worldly systems. This white horse, this image, Is the heavenly rule and heavenly kingdom of God. And Jesus' name here, it's an amazing title for Jesus faithful and true. Isn't that amazing? All you need to know about Jesus is in this name. He has been faithful to God's mission and purposes, and he embodies the truth of God's kingdom and vision. Jesus has been faithful. God's mission and purposes, and he embodies truth, the truth of God's kingdom. And he has this title at the end, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you've been in church since you were a kid, you might remember that song, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and it gets faster and faster and faster and faster. If anybody's that... You know, aged in the church, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, but it was a great reminder. And if, you think, if you've been tracking with us in this whole, in all these themes in Revelation, you can see that there's a reversal here because the beast and the false prophet in the earlier chapters would lure the kingdoms of this world, would lure the, the ruling class of this world, and co opt the ruling class for its purposes. But here, Jesus isn't co opted. Jesus is not lured into anything. Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And nothing in Satan's influence or the beast and the false prophet's influence or any of the world systems that are co-opted affect Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's above all that. And what we've just read here in the middle of these two chapters is still an act of judgment that that kind of follows what we've been reading up until now in these chapters 6 to 19. It says that in righteousness or in justice, same word, um... He brings judgment and makes war. And we have this, have this image, John has this image of his eyes flaming and diadems that would reflect his rule and his leadership and his lordship. And it's a stark image because we read here that John sees this striking down of the nations. But if you've been tracking with us so far, we have been recognizing that the nations have been influenced by Satan or the, or the ruling class or, or there's been systems that have been co-opted by Satan. But here we read that Jesus will strike down the nations and he will rule. His rule will come. And as we said, for God's rule to really take shape and take root, there cannot be into eternity an existence of evil. We know that the nations have been co-opted systems, and John often referred to Roman, the Roman Empire, the Roman Imperial cult, and things like that that were going on. Even we said, you know, the Mark of the Beast, 666, was a reference to Nero, who, who was co-opted by the principalities and powers to bring injustice and also oppression, both to um, those who knew Christ and those who didn't know Christ. And so we have in this moment here, in this transition, Jesus bringing all this to a close. And there's four, three or four elements in this transition that are really important for us. The first one is that the beast that we heard about in a couple of chapters earlier, the false prophet, um, the image of Babylon last week, the image of the horror, That was I won't repeat all that last week. You can listen to last week's podcast and uh, see how we dealt with that. But um, the, the beast is destroyed. The false prophet is destroyed. Here's, here's chapter 19, verse 19 and 20. It says this, it says, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So coming against Christ. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That is a finality to the ways of Satan and how Satan influences through the beast and the false prophet. They are brought to a finality. Then Satan is brought to his end. Here's chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. He seized the dragon and the the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and drew him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more. Until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be let out for a little while. We'll address that in a second. Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan is captured, released for a while. He wants war. They're consumed instead, and Satan is destroyed. So for these, two, these two pieces, these two characters, are brought to their finality. Now, the thousand years confuses us, and we can talk like we can do a three week course on the millennium. But we won't today, I promise you. And it can confuse us, right? Because we read this right in the middle. Here's this interlude in the middle of this. And you're like, well, what is this? What's happening? And it has confused people for centuries. And it's led many of us down rabbit holes. And there's three prominent beliefs on a premillennial belief, a no millennial belief, or a post-millennial belief that maybe this happens before the return of Christ. Maybe we're in it right now. Maybe it's happening in the future. And here's what I want to suggest to you, at least for our purposes, without making this a lecture, which I'm not totally qualified for. No, I'm just joking. But I, I feel this. As we've been reading the metaphors, the images, how numbers in Revelation are never literal. Seven years means completion. Three and a half years means incomplete. The seven churches and the seven stars and the seven lampstands, it's like this is God's wholeness. This is what God is doing the idea that this will just be wrapped up in an hour is obviously not a literal 60 minutes. And so I think as we've been reading Revelation so far, not predictively, but prophetically and pastorally, we can recognize that even this thousand years, we could at least suggest that it's symbolic and not statistic. It's a symbol of a time period of something, but it's not, it doesn't have to be literal. Just like all the other numbers we've read in Revelation, tend to be symbolic and not statistic, not literal. The 144,000 is not just 144,000 people, but represents Israel and the church and God's people because they're later called a multitude. So we know that these numbers reflect a deeper meaning, but not being literal. And so I would suggest that this thousand years doesn't have to be a statistic, it can be symbolic. One writer says this, I don't think it's on the screen, Craig Holster says, just as the door to the great abyss cannot be located on a map, The duration of the thousand years cannot be located on a calendar. And I would just leave it with that for now. Because something else that's going on here in this portion is that there's another reversal going on. A lot of reversals happening in Revelation. And this is another one where instead of the kings of the earth being lured and tempted by the beast to work with the beast, to, to, to work under Satan's influence, now the saints who have been martyred are reigning with Christ. There's a reversal that's taking place. But the ultimate part of this whole passage, there's a finality to Satan's power, a finality to Satan's influence, and a finality to Satan's existence. And we read later on the third element in this transition that death and Hades is gone. The forces of death. Remember, Jesus went to the cross, and on the cross, he disarmed the powers, he dealt with death, and here we're seeing the fulfillment of it. Now taking place One of the four horsemen reflect death. One of the powers and principalities in our world is death. It's dealt with. The force of death is fully destroyed. What Christ did in his death is brought to completion. And then here's the fourth element in this transition, and it's, it's humans being judged. It's humanity being judged. Here's um, verse 12 of chapter 20. "I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. Then verse 15, and anyone whose name was not found in the book of life, not all the books, but the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is a tough reality to process as we read this because we're recognizing that even parts of humanity have been co-opted by evil and Satan's influence and somehow the transition into new creation requires a finality to all of Satan's influence. So there's two judgments going on. There's a general judgment going on. And this, doesn't, this general judgment doesn't prohibit me or you from entering into new creation. It's a judgment of accountability. It's a judgment of our deeds. It's a judgment of our actions. It reveals our works and our life and our decisions and our actions and our intentions. And somehow we're held accountable for it. God, by God's grace, He doesn't hold our actions against us. We don't have to be good or better or perfect to get into new creation. Jesus went to the cross, and, you know, the cross is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. We don't have to do anything for that. But at some point, it seems like there's an accountability happening before new creation where all of humanity is judged. And then there's a judgment for all who have rejected Christ. All who have rejected an invitation to his kingdom, an invitation to repentance, an invitation for mercy, an invitation for salvation, those who have decidedly longed for and acted with beastly systems, who have decidedly been separate from Christ. Now, we can't, I can't in the next, in three minutes tell you how that works, what's going to happen, the extent of that. That's not the point today. But the point of this is to show that in this transition, there's a finality to any evil existence. And we've recognized, even over this series, how Revelation doesn't just speak to the world. It speaks to us. That it cuts right through us, too. That we have to recognize how we are often lured in by the beast and the false prophet and the empires of our world. Right? And so that's really important for us to understand. So even humanity is judged Bruce Metzger says this, you could read this off the screen, he says, the picture of wrath and hell means nothing more or less than the terrible truth that the sufferings of those who persist in rejecting God's love in Christ are self-imposed and self-perpetuated. And we've seen that, that it's not just God's judgment coming, but God's judgment comes as humanity implodes on itself. We end up destroying each other at times. But he continues, the inevitable consequence is that if they eternally persist in such rejection... God will never violate their personality. And then this leaves it open. Whether any soul will in fact eternally resist God, we cannot say. And I cannot say. I I don't know if someone will eternally resist God. But we see a judgment for those who do. But back to this whole millennial piece and the Satan and the beast and the false prophet, Eugene Peterson says this, why all three are not dumped into the lake together is one of the, to me, unanswerable but ma- minor ambiguities that keeps the vision from being reduced to a diagram. It's important, right? Revelation, sometimes we, we like diagrams. You know, We like the quadrants. We like the timelines. We like the ups and downs. We like all that stuff. Is it going up to the right? Is it going down? What's taking place? We want to know all the, all the details. But when we read this chapter, we're like, I can't make a diagram about this. This is confusing me. And that's okay, it's an unanswerable, maybe a minor ambiguity that keeps us from reducing it to a diagram. But here, Peterson says this, the last word, though, is that every form and source of evil is banished from history. That's the big idea here. That those who don't want God won't be with God in new creation. And those who have co-opted with the beast or the beastly systems will cease to exist because Jesus' rule brings this transition about jesus on the white horse brings this transition about now there's questions right well what's the lake of fire and where is it can we find that on a map is it somewhere else and that's a tough image we cheer right oh man satan's thrown into the lake of fire Woo-hoo! beast and the false prophet lake of fire death in hades i hate that stuff lake of fire but not people if anybody cheers at that That would not be right. But somehow we're understanding that the finality of evil systems come to a close. And and here's what I would say. I'd repeat um, Michael Gorman who says this about the lake of fire. It's symbolically what God does actually. It does symbolically what God does actually. We, We have seen so many images in Revelation that tell us this is the heart of what is happening but it's not literally this but it's the heart of what's happening. And the lake of fire is doing symbolically what God does actually. You see, there's so many images that we find hard to to, to make out as literal, and this this is one of them. And if we've been reading Revelation so far, if we're taking this pastoral, prophetic approach, we know the literal point of apocalyptic literature is not literal. But it's metaphors and images and ideas that wake us up, that reveal truth. And what we find in this image is the finality of God's judgment rather than the details of it. You catch the difference? It's a finality of God's judgment rather than the details of it. And if I say to someone, I'm going to squash that idea like a bug, well, I'm not literally going to squash the bug, but symbolically I'm trying to tell you what I'm going to do to that idea, Right? So the finality of God's judgment in metaphor rather than full details of it. But here's another question. I don't know about you, but this brings up the question for me. What about the armies and the war and the battles? I mean, even C.S. Lewis in, his, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, his last book is called The Final Battle, and it's based on these couple of chapters. It's based on them, and, and it's a serious look at them, and, 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 and he wants to deal with it in narrative form. But if we take it as a predictive way, oh, where's Gog and Magog? Where's this going to happen? What's going to happen? We're looking for a final battle. We're looking for how the pieces are going to work. We're saying, what nation is being co-opted by by Satan to make this happen? And where's this going to happen? Oh, maybe because it was listed here in the Bible, maybe we're going to find this place in the Middle East, and this is where it's going to take place. And I would say, just like Revelation 11, where the two witnesses who die or who raise up in jerusalem is not literal because it's showing us that the two witnesses are showing us this is how the church is a faithful witness in the world to god's kingdom they often suffer some of them die in in process of being a witness for god's kingdom but there will be a final resurrection and what we said from chapter 11 that mimics the gospel That mimics the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it mimics the purpose and the promise that is for all who are faithful witnesses in Christ. And so this battle as well, we can try and name places. And there's moments of trying to reflect other battles that are alluded to in the Old Testament to help us to see the reality of what Jesus is doing. But not necessarily the literal thing. I like what Eugene Peterson says here. Read it off the screen. He says, the only way we can dodge the pastoral intent of the vision, meaning the only way we can avoid the pastoral intent of the vision is by projecting it into the future as an end of world war. Just stop for a second. We said this a couple of times in the last few weeks. We said if we make Revelation predictive, what we're doing is we're saying, oh, everything we read here is over there. Everything we read here is in the future. Everything we read here is in another part of the world, and we never take anything that's pastorally, prophetically spoken to us as people, as humans, as Christ followers, as the church. If the, if the seven churches in Revelation would have read this and said, oh, that's only out there, well, what's the point of this being a prophecy they're meant to read and be blessed by? It's meant for us. So Peterson says, the only way to dodge the pastoral intent of the vision is by projecting it into the future as an end of world war. It is an end of world war, but it's the world of temptation and injustice and deceit coming to an end in us and our communities. That's the heart of it. Actually, I don't need to read this chapter to predict there's going to be some wars in the Middle East or any other parts of the world. If someone was reading this, if you didn't have to read this back in the 1800s or 1900s to say there's gonna, we predict a world war. Like, there's wars happening all over the world right now. So we don't need this specifically to tell us a literal timeline of that. We know that the world lives in turmoil, in chaos, in catastrophe with these tensions. And here's the most important thing when we read about this war in these texts, of all the talk in chapters 19 and 20, no literal battle ever takes place. You always hear they're getting ready for it. This is they're getting geared up. The the armies have come together, but there's no war. The battle never takes place. Isn't that fascinating? Craig Koester looks at this text and he says, in the cataclysmic battle of Revelation 19, what do the heavenly armies do? They do nothing. All action belongs to Christ. There's no battle. Maybe because the battle's already been won. Maybe because Jesus already won in his death and resurrection and it's being fulfilled in the future. And this brings us back to Jesus on the white horse. This brings us back... I know his name is not mentioned there, but it's pretty evident that it's referring to Christ with the titles and the names. See, we humans like to project blood onto jesus's hands we i think get justified to know that jesus will have blood on his hands as a warrior god like thor with his hammer and sword smashing the enemies in the universe like yes jesus you go And we envision Jesus coming out of that battle, destroying the enemy, destroying Satan, destroying evil influence. Just blood on his garments. I think we like that more than the text likes it. We like that. Humans like that. We see it in our movies. We see it in the things we talk about. We see it in our own intention for revenge and vengeance in our own personal things. Not literal blood with our neighbors. Not literal blood with the people, you know, people in our workplace, but man, do we want to get even sometimes? So I think we love to see it, but I want you to consider two important pictures. Jesus's robe, and we read it, is dipped in blood. But this is the difference. Did you notice Jesus already came into the battle stained in blood? He didn't leave the battle stained in blood. He came into the battle stained in blood. Whose blood was it? It was his own blood. He already went to the cross and shed his blood. He died on the cross and shed his blood. So I want to suggest to us that the blood on Jesus' robe is not the blood of people, but the blood he shed for people. It's a big difference. That's on the screen. The blood on Jesus' robe is not the blood of people, but the blood he shed for people. The blood he shed for salvation. The blood he shed for humanity. It's one of the reasons I wore this sweater today. I don't often wear sweatshirts on a Sunday. But uh, I love this one. It says vicar. It's an old word for a priest. And this is a company in Toronto that makes these. these, I have two of their, I have a t-shirt and a sweatshirt. And I want you to, I'm going to read what they're all about. They're called Vicar Supply is an apparel brand that melds high quality and design with specific emphasis on peace, justice, and nonviolence. Our materials are ethically sourced and developed. The vicar name is is to take on the old identity of the vicar priest, a gatekeeper of defunct religion, being renewed with a new identity of everyone having a role to play as a priest of peace and nonviolence. And as part of their mission, some of their proceeds go to urban agencies that are committed to peace, nonviolence, and the alleviation of poverty and human suffering. And I wanted to wear their shirt today because it reminds me that when I see, you know, a lightning bolt, I think of Thor's power to destroy people. When I see Vicar, I think of the victory I want to have over my enemies. But when we read Revelation, we recognize Jesus' method of salvation was reversed. Jesus shed his own blood for people. He's not shedding the blood of people. God's means of salvation was allowing his son to be killed under the beastly systems we've talked about for the last few weeks, including Rome, to bring them down. He brought them down by his own death. His battle was fought and won in his death so important. And then the second image I want you to keep in mind, where is the sword of Jesus in this text? Anybody know? In his mouth. It's not in his hand. It's in his mouth. It's not in his hands. It's like that old M&M commercials. It'll melt in your mouth, not in your hands. The sword of Christ is not in his hands. Christ doesn't come to the battle with a weapon in his hands. But with the word of truth in his mouth. There's a big difference there. There's a story that, there's a book called, um, uh, I think it's called uh, Mars. Oh my gosh, what's it called? Anyways, it's about the god of, of violence, which is Mars. And it's a book written about how Christianity projects a much more uh, nonviolent approach. And there's a story in there, the author writes, he was in the Middle East on a tour, looking through caves and this and that on a tour there, and they came to a point, and I'm not saying this in any way against Islam, but I just want to point this out historically. They come to a, a point in a cave, and there's a sword there. And they're stopped, and they start to describe this sword as, this is the sword of Muhammad. And I, I never forget reading the words off the page when he said this. He said, I'm so grateful that there's no place on this planet where we can take an archaeological tour and find the sword of Jesus. Jesus doesn't come with a sword in his hand. He comes with a sword in his mouth. There's no weapons of war. There's weapons of words. And what's the word? The word of truth. The gospel truth. The declaration of God's kingdom. That truth is what judges and brings finality to to satanic influence. It's not military. It's revealing. And it reveals the ugliness of it and then this is what Jesus does. And this is the power of Jesus that's more powerful than a weapon. That's more powerful than what work can accomplish. God speaks evil into non-existence. God speaks evil into non-existence. And the images and symbols help us understand evil's fate. They help us understand that God's salvation brings conclusion to the catastrophe that Satan and his influence have brought just by the words of his mouth, just by truth. Sometimes I think the judgment is really a plan B because we read Jesus saying, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. And while that's true, we see a world just littered with evil influence. So although the hope is that everyone would respond and repent and get reoriented into his new creation, there's judgment that does come. But none of this is new. This has all been in the Bible already. It's not new. We don't have to make something up in Revelation. We see the story of Scripture. The death and resurrection of Jesus already happened, and it's going to come to its fulfillment in this transition. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to ask the team to come up um, just in a minute or so. Actually, yeah, maybe just wait two minutes. Um, I know they hate standing behind me while I'm talking. So. But, I, but, but listen to how... I just want to just pause here for a second as we, we come to, to wrap this up. Because the songs at the beginning of chapter 19... Again, this is not a literal sequence. The songs anticipate new creation. The songs anticipate the transition that Jesus is bringing. And listen to what is said. After this, this is the beginning of 19, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying this, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true. And he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants." And here's this next song, verse 6, chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying out. And here's the song, you ready? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. To her, it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The whore of Babylon tries to buy luxury items and, and get people to buy stuff on wholesale so they can get into the system. Jesus says, your life in me and lived out in me will provide you with pure linen. The marriage of the Lamb has come. So as we, as we come to this close, how do we, what do we do with this today? How do we wrap this up? And I think it's these two things. Communion and conflict are here in these, in these two, two chapters. We see the beautiful communion of the Supper of the Lamb. And if you don't catch the, the connection, it connects to our communion once a month when we break bread and we pour wine. Where Jesus said as he poured the wine, we're going to pour this now, but one day we're going to pour it together in eternity. When he breaks bread and says, this is my body broken for you, that's Jesus who's already gone before us. His blood is shed for us. His body's broken for us. When we break the bread, when we pour the wine, we're already thinking about the marriage supper of the Lamb one day that is coming, right? So there's communion in that. But then we know, we know, like tomorrow you're going to live your life and there's going to be conflict. There's going to be chaos in our world. There's going to be tension in you, in the world around us. And we struggle between the times. So here's my two words of, just, just to leave this with you. One, your salvation, my salvation. And if you're just starting to become a Christian, this is important to understand. If you've been a Christian for a while, this is important to get. Salvation isn't always a walk in the park. It's not always a walk in the park. We live into the battle of it daily daily. The Scripture calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, so we're called to be alert. And if the images in Revelation do anything for us, or nothing else for us, but does this, let them wake us up to be alert, to be alert every day. How many of you guys have had a presentation in the day, have a difficult conversation to make, or have a hard decision to make, you wake up in the morning, and you're like, it has nothing to do with weapons, right? But you're just like, I'm ready for battle, I got to do this presentation. Oh my gosh, I got to have this really hard conversation. Oh man, I got to deal with this. And so you wake up and you splash like cold water in your face. And you look in the mirror and you're like, Dave, I can do this. You start punching the mirror. You're not really going into war, but what are you doing? You're waking yourself up. You're being alert for the task ahead of you. And I think some of these scenes are meant to do that. They're meant to keep us alert for the conflict that's not yet resolved. It will be resolved. Jesus will bring the transition. And so what do we do daily? We participate daily in the lordship of Jesus. We listen for his voice in the scriptures. We listen for the voice of his spirit. And by, when I say participate to the lordship of Christ, I don't mean we listen and tell other people. I mean we listen and we respond. We're like, oh, Jesus, you've told me to walk this path. I'm going to follow your authority. I'm going to listen and serve your lordship. And in the middle of the chaos and brokenness, we then become, we can live as faithful witnesses to the reality of God's kingdom. That's how your life and my life daily becomes a contrast to the chaos in our world. So be aware of that every day. But here's good news. It's not without hope and it's not without promise. It's not without fulfillment. The war is, and the war will be won by who? By Jesus. Jesus wins the war, and we get to experience parts of it. Didn't his disciples send out, Jesus sends out 70 of them? They come back, they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, the demons listen to us. What the heck was that? Like, well, yeah, that's possible. Or, man, we prayed for this. This, was, this happened. There's little glimpses of it. Why could Paul, writing under Roman oppression, in a Roman cell, thrown into prison because of his faith, write letters as if the victory is already accomplished? How could he do that? He, because there was hope and there was promise. And so these images of this final battle show us that Christ will bring all evil to its knees and completely removed. Amen. Don't you want that? We want that. And here's the best part, and you guys can start, I promise. Now you can start, and we're going to sing this together. (laughs) You are are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I am invited. We're invited. And you know what's crazy about this? I know when we read this, we see some of the difficult passages, but I want you to understand something, that those who have been deceived by the systems of this world and have been left dry, the promise is you're invited to God's kingdom. What did Jesus say at the beginning of the gospel? I'm bringing the kingdom of God near, repent and believe. That was an invitation. Repent and believe. Turn around, believe, follow this. If you've been deceived by the systems of our world and left dry, you're invited to this meal. If you've been oppressed, by the systems of this world or others have been oppressed by the systems of this world God will bring that oppression to its knees and cancel it out and bring them to justice and you're invited to this supper of the Lamb but this is where grace gets so crazy and why in one hand we think about the seriousness of God bringing judgment to the evil systems of our world and on the other hand he's like Wait, I'm gonna wait. You see all the images in Revelation. Just hold back the judgment. God just always trying to like, how can I give more mercy? And here's something I want to say. When we we don't, we, it's hard for us to believe this, but the participants of the worldly systems, the participants of the beastly systems, those who have married the beastly systems and have been co-opted. You know what amazing news is for you if that's you or if the world? You're still invited. Now you're invited. Jesus is saying. You can, you can get out. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to be a participant in beastly systems. You're invited to God's kingdom. You can still repent and believe. Isn't, isn't that an amazing invitation? So and here's the thing. We read this text, right? We read in chapter 19, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I know what we do. We, we read that as a prerequisite. Oh, I didn't get the invitation? Oh my goodness. That's not what this is more like a beatitude. This is a declaration. Those who hear the invitation, you're blessed. You know why you're blessed? Because you've just been invited. The invitation's for you. You're blessed because the invitation is there and you're now welcome into it. Amen? Let's pray. God. We hold intention in our own minds and hearts because, in our human capacity, we can conjure up a hundred ways to bring justice. But in faith, we trust your ways the ways of Jesus, the counterintuitive ways, the countercultural ways. Such a countercultural way that your son walks into the battle already dipped in his own blood shed for us. And we are so thankful. Thank you how you show us your heart in the way of your son Jesus. We thank you for the strong, piercing, sometimes loving, sometimes holy word that comes from Jesus' mouth. Because it's that word while it pierces us it also transforms us and changes us Calls us and invites us and cleans us. And we need that, God. And we pray for that word to be heard around the globe because every person we lock eyes with matters to you and you long for them to hear the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we be people who are spreading this invitation everywhere may we be ones who recognize the beauty and blessedness of being welcomed in not on our own merit but on what christ has already done at the cross and resurrection and may we be so grateful and so overjoyed that we invite others to consider this beautiful invitation we long god for so many to hear this and feel blessed because they also have responded. God, for anyone watching online or here today that feels like they are not yet part of this beautiful meal, your family, God, may you speak so deeply into their hearts. May they hear the invitation of Christ to follow him and trust him and trust his leadership and lordship. So that they could know the restoration that you promise. Glimpses of it now and promised fully in the future. May these, the words of this, these prophecies speak to us and our church first. Call us to be faithful witnesses, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us. Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.